0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Spare the rod and spoil the child. That's how many people remember the Bible verse and how some parents justify spanking their children. And among many African-Americans, there's also the persistent idea that beating a child can somehow save them from white violence. What's the cost for our families and for our children's health?
1: If beating black children were a prerequisite for success, then black people should be ruling this country right now.
0: Preventing Child Abuse, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to a word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and our society's understanding of what does and does not meet the definition of abuse varies widely. In many parts of the African-American community, there are persistent cultural expectations that the only proper way to discipline a child involves hitting them. But is it time to retire the idea that physical discipline is ever necessary and to embrace a wider definition of abuse? Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Stacey Patton. She is a writer, a child abuse survivor, and the author of the book, Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Children Won't Save Black America. Dr. Stacy Patton, welcome to A Word.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here, Jason.
0: How widespread is child abuse in the Black community? What are some of the numbers behind it? Who are the primary perpetuators of child abuse in the Black community?
1: It's a pretty widespread problem. Let's just start with the number one risk factor for physical injuries and fatalities it's hitting children whether we call it spanking beating popping whooping or whatever so hitting a child always puts them at risk for either an injury or a fatality the data tells us from sources like child trends which conducts these surveys of parental attitudes on things like corporal punishment tells us that the majority of American parents across race and ethnicity support hitting children or actually use it as a punishment practice. Now, there isn't a huge statistical difference between Black folks and these other groups. We're just, embrace the practice at Slightly higher levels in terms of proportion, but the majority of American parents are hitting their kids. Now, when it comes to legal definitions of child abuse, it varies state by state. So you can hit a child one way in Mississippi and maybe even injure them, but you try to do that same thing in Vermont and you might go to jail. And there are also 19 states that still allow physical punishment of kids in public schools. Every state with the exception of New Jersey and Iowa allows corporal punishment in private and charter schools. We don't know how widespread the practice is. Now, in terms of abuse, substantiated cases of abuse, African-American children are disproportionately affected every single year. You can look at the annual child maltreatment reports and see the numbers. So we have significantly higher rates of substantiated cases of physical abuse and also fatalities. The last numbers that I saw from 2020, there was over 500 Black children who were killed by their caretakers. i pulled data. So I often hear Black people say, if I don't whoop my child, the police will kill them. So I've been able to look at the numbers for the past five years in terms of the number of black children who were killed by cops. This is over a five-year period. And this comes from data from the Washington Post's fatal force database. So you can go on that database and disaggregate victims by race and age. So I disaggregated black children. And during that five-year period, it was something like around 40 black children who were killed. But then when I put those numbers next to the child maltreatment reports, there are more than 2,300 Black children who were killed by their parents during the same time period. So the reality is, is that Black children are more at risk of being seriously assaulted or killed by their own parents and caretakers than shot by the police.
0: What do we know about who is perpetuating this violence?
1: I took a look at child abuse fatalities and perpetrators by gender among African-Americans. This is for all states. Including DC and Puerto Rico. So I looked at 2015 to 2022. So during that five year period, there were 3,146 Black child fatalities. The number of Black boys who were killed during that period was 1,812. The number of Black girls who were killed, 1,334. And so then when we look at the perpetrators, the number of black male perpetrators of child abuse fatalities was 1,692. And the number of black female perpetrators was 2,106. So the data tells us that black boys, in terms of raw numbers, if you just look at raw numbers, black boys are victimized at higher rates than black girls. And those who perpetrate these fatalities are predominantly black women. So that's what the microdata tells us. And that's just a five-year view.
0: A lot of people might just look at that data and say, well, yeah, if women are often saddled with caring for the children, aren't they more likely to be the perpetuators of this violence? Do you think that sort of explains those numbers or is there something else that might be a play?
1: It could be. The data just tell us the data. You'd really have to go into each individual case file and read what the circumstances were to be able to flesh out those nuances. So many people's reactions is just to say, oh, that makes sense because the mothers are there, the fathers aren't around. But then there's data that shows that actually Black males are much more involved in their children's lives, despite stereotypical narratives about missing Black fathers. Then, you know, there are some folks who'll say, well, with COVID, people were locked down. Black men may have been around even more at home. And maybe their presence was a protective factor, or maybe it didn't. And even in some of those numbers that I quoted for you, sometimes it was a man and woman who were both perpetrating, could have been a step parent, etc. cetera. So there's a number of different factors that explain this. People often assume that it is just predominantly single moms who are undereducated people who perpetrate violence against children. And that's not true. You know, or that it's just black people who hold a monopoly on this. It's not true. Child abuse is something that spans race and geography and class. White people beat the hell out of their kids too, but they're less public about it, less celebratory about it than we are. And, you know, we often live in communities that are subjected to hyper surveillance, and we don't always have the resources to skirt attention by law enforcement in schools. And then you've got all these kids who are increasingly being homeschooled as part of religious movements and such. And so there's a lot of abuse. You have to remember that despite how terrible those numbers are, there's so much abuse that doesn't even get reported. This is just a small drop in the bucket. And with COVID for two years, you know, you had outlets reporting that abuse rates had fallen. Well, of course they did because Teachers and school officials are generally primarily responsible for reporting the bulk of abuse. So we didn't have the eyes of mandated reporters looking at kids every day. But what we do know from some anecdotal stories is that there was an uptick in anonymous calls, like kids calling to say I'm being physically abused or sexually abused at home. So until the next reports come out, we still don't know the full magnitude of what was happening to children during lockdown.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more on child abuse in the Black community. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about National Child Abuse Prevention Month with writer and child advocate, Dr. Stacey Patton. How does the brain process a parent yelling at a five-year-old and saying, you're ugly, I wish I didn't have you, you're stupid? I mean, they may never lay a hand on a child. And most of us today would say that that's abuse. But how does the body process that differently than, say, a sexual assault or a physical beating?
1: It pretty much processes it in similar ways. You know, there's research that shows that people who experience verbal abuse have issues with language processing. So we have that kind of research that shows whether the cognitive impact, what it does to self-esteem and mental health, self-concept. When you yell at a child when you threaten a child, when you curse at a child, the brain's job is to keep the body safe and to send the child's body into fight or flight mode. There's a great book by Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You? And he has this wonderful chart in there that I I use all the time on the five brain states. And so he starts with calm and he ends up over with terror on the other end of that spectrum. And underneath each brain state, he tells you what part of the brain that a person is operating from. So if you're calm, you're operating from the prefrontal cortex, that higher part of the brain where there's executive functioning, there's abstract thinking, problem solving, creativity. There's no reaction modes there. You're not, in, you know, fighting and being defensive. You're actually able to think. Your body feels safe and you're operating from a high IQ. But then when you go over to terror, right? Because somebody's in your face yelling at you, threatening you. You're actually operating from the brainstem, that, that, that part that puts you into survival mode. Well, all your oxygenated blood is going to your extremities so that you can be prepared to fight, to run away, or to freeze. There's no thinking happening. You don't have access to the thinking part of your brain. You're in survival mode and you're operating from a very low IQ. So that's why when parents say, oh, I hit my child so they can learn. So this is a part of teaching. That's not how the brain works. No new learning, no new information can be taken in when the body is in a state of fear and terror.
0: Dr. Patton, some people have made the connection between whipping and spanking in the black community and slavery. But you've also talked about how that violence within the enslaved community also stemmed from behavior on the part of Europeans and their treatment of children. Can you just sort of take us through the pathway there of how Western treatment of children led to the behavior of enslaved people and how that manifests in Black people and child abuse today?
1: A lot of people will say that whipping children is a Black thing, that we bought this over from Africa with us. These are the same people who will say they stole everything from us, our names, our traditions, all of these wonderful cultural things that we like to herald. But whipping children is this one thing that survived the Middle Passage, even though the archives tell us that the majority of the people who were forced onto those ships were young. Many of them had not yet finished childhood or had given birth to children themselves. If these people had all come from the same places, the same villages, the same tribes, spoke the same languages, practiced the same religions, held the same conceptions about childhood and child rearing, and they all came over here with a universal parenting guide that says, whoop your child when they act out, and they were, you know, dropped off in different parts of the diaspora, and white people never did anything to manipulate relationships between Black parents and children, then maybe we could make that argument, but there's no evidence of it. There's absolutely no evidence, anthropological or historical evidence, that this type of ritualistic practice, punishment practice, existed in pre-colonial West African cultures and other indigenous cultures around the world. We have evidence to the contrary. We have evidence that when Europeans encountered a lot of these cultures and they commented on parenting practices, they were aghast that these people let their children run wild. When we look at oral traditions, when we look at the ways in which West African folks talked about their kids or their naming practices, Babatunde, father has returned, Yeratunde, mother has returned, the Bang people would never put a child on the floor because it was considered disrespectful. They called children gods. They were mystical. They were magical. They were superior to adults. They talked to the gods. Hitting a child diminished you. Hitting a child separated children from their spirit guides. They believed that children already led deeply spiritual lives, and they chose their parents. So the ways in which we revered kids prior to our misfortune of having contact with Europeans who stole us and colonized us in different ways, which is completely different. And when we talk about the historical evolution of corporal punishment in African-American family life, we don't begin in slavery. We don't begin in West Africa. We begin in Europe. Now I know people are going to side-eye me because I'm a black woman saying this, but there's a whole historical literature on the treatment of children in Europe, a whole bunch of white men wrote it, so y'all will believe them. Before you believe me, the books have already been written. A lot of this had to do with environmental conditions, war, plagues, crop failure, communal violence, religious persecution, bringing children to watch horrible executions as pedagogical practices. And there was rampant child abuse in those cultures. And so we have the benefit of the last 20 years of neuroscience and developmental psychology that tell us that exposure to trauma in environments and in early childhood shapes brains, shapes nervous systems, changes the way genes express themselves. And you can pass your own experiences down for at least two generations. So if you have these people who continuously are born into these harsh conditions, and then we get to... Britain and we've get got these Europeans who are fleeing their conditions, fleeing trauma, fleeing persecution, right? With all this transgenerational millennial debasement living in their bodies, they haven't undergone a kind of collective spiritual purge within their culture. It is that trauma, all of that trauma that finds white settlers colonizing North America with genocide. And so They continue to be horrible to white children as they were colonizing this country. And they continue to traumatize their own children. And then racism gives them an opportunity to redirect and displace a lot of that unhealed ancestral and familial trauma onto black bodies. So if you want to talk about where all of this comes from, It's not native to Black people. It's not the way we did things. Beating a Black child is the whitest thing that you can do to destroy them physically, spiritually, psychologically, intellectually. It's not us.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more about child abuse within the Black community. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with author and child advocate Dr. Stacey Patton about child abuse and prevention. Dr. Patton, most people will argue that abuse has to do with the outcome. How do you argue against people like that? How do you argue against the comedian or the entertainer or just the regular person who's like, I got whipped and I turned out fine? I'm a loving father, loving mother, parent. You're crazy.
1: Well, it says to me that they've been socialized to accept their own oppression and to blame themselves, you know, to reframe what happened to them. I hear people say, I'm not in jail today because somebody whooped me. I'm a, I have a job. I went to college. I have a degree. I have all this stuff because somebody whooped me. And so I'm always like, so you agree with massa?" which means that this long, you know, heritage of a believing that the only way to turn black people into good law-abiding, productive folks is to process their bodies through violence. So you've internalized this idea that we are naturally deviant people and that the only way we could achieve these things is through violence and terror. And I'm always like, how much better could you have been without all of those things? Why do you believe that you couldn't have turned out to be a genius and brilliant without somebody laying hands on you. And these people often use a sample size of one and use their anecdotal experiences to make a generalizable statement about why hitting people is good for them. But the the reality is, is that the body keeps the score.
0: In recent years, there's been this trend of parents sharing videos on social media of them beating their kids or really embarrassing elaborate punishments Obviously, you're not in favor of these sorts of things, but what's the negative impact of a parent sharing a picture of them whipping their child? What's the negative impact of a parent sharing a Facebook post of, I made my son dress up like a clown today because he was clowning around in class? And what does that do to the conversations we need to have in the Black community about abuse?
1: Well, they're terrible. I mean, first, you had to endure the trauma. You had to survive the whipping. The shaming. Here's this person who is supposed to be your anchor, your safe anchor, somebody who's supposed to protect you, somebody who's supposed to create a safe world around you, shaming you, embarrassing you, hurting your body. And then this person compounds it by putting a camera in front of your face to share it with potentially millions of other people who can then log on a social media platform and watch it and comment on it. So then it becomes this kind of comedic digital therapy for a lot of folks. And, you know, the parent gets what they think is validation. You know, look at me. I'm such a great parent because, you know, I belted my kid in selfie mode and then shared it on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, world star, hip hop, all of these places. There's plenty of research out there that shows that this is terrible psychologically. Someday those kids are going to grow up and see that, that material out there and remember that moment with their parent and reading all of the comments. And they have to re-experience that trauma all over again. Those kids haven't grown up yet, but we're going to have a whole generation of young people who you know, are going to see that stuff. And I just, it's, it's just going to further compound their trauma.
0: We know we're not going to end child abuse in the United States or the world uh, tomorrow. But what's one thing that you want people to get from your work and your research and your advocacy? What's one thing that you want people to get from your book or this interview that they can do or that they should be doing now to protect children?
1: I want people to look up childism. Look up that word. We talk a lot about racism. We talk a lot about sexism and other isms. But I need people to understand what childism is and that it is at the root of our cultural acceptance of physical punishment of children. Once again, physical punishment is the number one risk factor for injuries and fatalities. If we can shift people's thinking about the nature of children, then maybe we can have people looking at children in ways that are not processing them as inferior, as property, in need of and deserving of harsh punishment and coercion. And maybe people then be moved to study child development to understand what's happening in children's brains. So, like yesterday, for example, a woman said to me, Well, how do you correct a child in their early years when they don't listen? And they're stubborn. And I said to her, in early childhood, children can't listen. Auditory processing doesn't come to completion until around 14 years old. The brain is an organ that slowly develops. So once we understand the brain, then we can reconfigure our expectations about what children can do and stop punishing them for things that they're not capable of. Of mastering and stop punishing them for them acting out according to the environments that we set for them and the unreasonable expectations we set for them. Look at the everyday prejudices we have against children, the language we use, and developing empathy and patience for them.
0: Dr. Stacey Patton is a child advocate and researcher and the author of Spare the Kids, Why Whipping Children Won't Save Black America. Thanks so much for joining us today on A Word.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.